Hello everyone and welcome to From the Archives. This podcast goes back to many sermons preached over many years. We thought we'd bring them from the past here into the present so you can enjoy some of the messages that came before. Take a listen to what we have tonight. Okay, apologetics, defending the faith. Let's move on tonight to our 13th question. Can you believe it? We've been looking at the questions from our youth for 13 weeks. Amazing, we still haven't run out of questions. We have a lot of questions yet to go. Here's our 13th question. Why does Jesus love us so much? Why did he die for us? Uh, At first when I read this question, I was kind of taken aback. I was like, what? This is like John 3.16 stuff. This is like the stuff you memorize when you're a little bitty kid and you can't memorize anything else. You memorize John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. But then I thought, you know what? John 3.16 starts at a certain point. It starts at the point of believing that God does love us. And there are people in our church, there are young people in our church, possibly who have made mistakes, people who have uh, done things they now regret. Uh, this, this, was, this was from one of our high school students. So I don't know what you can do in high school that's so bad, you start questioning, why does God even care about me? But let's answer their question tonight. And to answer the question of why does God love us so much, we have to look at what God's love is. Because if I say I love my wife, it does not mean the same thing as I love turkey, or I love my car, or I love football. Of course, that last one will be a lie, because I don't love football. I like sumo wrestling. It's a good sport. Soccer, I'm becoming fond of. Football, not so much. Anyways, whatever you love, when we say we love it in English, it just doesn't communicate it. So let's look tonight. We're going to look at a lot of scriptures. Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8 is where I want to start tonight. Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8. Let's look and understand at what God means when he says he loves us. God loves us. Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8. I've got it on the board if you don't have it in the Word. But I encourage you guys to write these things down. Write them down because when someone says to you, how do I know God loves me? How do I know Jesus cares? Then you say not, well, I know because I feel. Don't say you feel. Nobody cares what you feel. That's not to be mean. It's just the truth. No one cares what we feel. Buddhists feel. Hindus feel. Muslims feel. But we have God's Word to tell us. Even if we don't feel it, then we know it. Here it is. Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that Yahweh set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because Yahweh loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of captivity with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Let's stop right there. Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8. Now Moses is talking to the people. He's about to send them into the promised land. He wants them to understand why God is doing what they do. Sometimes people in church become arrogant. We think God loves us because we go to church and we tithe and we do missions work and because we're nice to small uh, cats and old ladies. That is not why God loves us. I want us to look at these verses tonight. Very important. Look at this. It was not because you were more in number. Okay, it's not because there's so many of us that God loves us. God doesn't love a big church more than he loves a small church. You can have a church of five people. If they're worshiping Jesus, Jesus is in the house. Amen? Amen. 
where two or three are gathered together, I am there in the midst of them. You might have 30,000 people at the Church of Satan across town having their Thanksgiving meeting, cussing Christians right now. Is God in the house? No. Except his angels outside watching, taking names for the day of vengeance. Now, in this place, we might say, well, we're very few in number. So apparently God's not going to be in the house. Is that what the scripture says? No. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord, that Yahweh, set his love on you. First of all, understand this. When I say Yahweh, that is what capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D means. In Hebrew, they have the word Yahweh, the tetragrammaton, the four-letter name of God. It means I am, I exist. God's name is not a name like Bob or, or Harvey. It's a, it's, it's a statement of existence. But it is the name that God has given to Moses, whereby he is revealed to the people of Israel who are God's chosen people. So if he calls himself Yahweh, we'll do that. In your King James, it may say Jehovah. Jehovah is a German word. It is a combination of Yahweh and Adonai. Adonai is a great word. Whenever a Hebrew will read the scriptures and he sees the name Yahweh, he will not speak the holy name of God. Even though God says to call upon his name, they will say Adonai or the Lord. That's why the King James people wrote the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, because they were following the Jewish tradition of never speaking the holy name of God. So they just said Lord. Of course, the other word for uh, Lord in Hebrew is Baal or Baal. So the word the Lord doesn't exactly convey who God is. God gave us his name, a covenant name, and that name is Yahweh. So Yahweh has set his love on us. Now when you see this phrase, set his love, it means to take great delight in and to join yourself to. Now when your children were born, gentlemen, ladies for you too, when your children were born, did they have to earn your love? Did they have to be cute and smiley? No. Your kids are born, what do they do? First they vomit on you, then they poop on you, then they pee on you, and it doesn't stop for a few, for a few months, right? That's the child's love, it's just it's sharing with you. So is there anything the kid does to warrant our love? No, we set our love upon that child because that child has been given to us by God. We make a conscious choice to set our love upon that child. That takes us to the next phrase. He set his love on you and he chose you. Chose means to select or to appoint. Select or to appoint. If you want to think about it, think about it this way. You were not the child of God when you were born. I love it when one of our people said, um, although we're all the children of God, no, we ain't. We are all the creations of God. We are not the children of God until we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, a la John 3, 16, 17, and 18. A child who is beautiful and young and five who does not know Jesus is not a child of God. It is a creation of God. Not until you come into a relationship. Now that's not romantic, and that's not cuddly, and that's not UNICEF, Cardi, but uh, pardon me, it's doctrinally sound. God creates a relationship with those he calls into relationship with himself. Before you saw God, God saw you, amen? We've already covered that one. We know that part. So God chose the people of Israel. He appointed them to be his people. He selected them. He set his love on them. But why? Keep going. But it is because Yahweh loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Ah, what oath is that? Right here. That would be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What oath is that? Let me read to you quickly. Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my 
covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. He gave this to Moses. The Lord gave it to Moses to tell to them, when you keep the covenant with me, you will be my people, my treasured possession. I will choose you from among the nations of the earth to set my love upon you, to reveal myself to you, both at Sinai, through the laws, through the prophets. God revealed himself to a people, a peculiar, strange people called the Israelites. Now, what covenant is he talking about? He's talking about the covenant in Genesis chapter 15, 12 through 18. Now turn to that one. Genesis 15, 12 through 18. If you want to understand marriage, if you want to understand love, if you want to understand who you are in Jesus Christ, you cannot understand that apart from an understanding of Genesis 15, 12 through 18. Genesis 12, 15 through 18. You must understand this if you are going to know why God keeps talking about covenants. Covenants. Marriage is not a contract. Ladies, aren't you happy? You are not sold property. You did not get sold to your husband by your father. Ha <laughs> So there's no contract involved. We have a legal document that states rights and all that garbage. But at its heart, marriage is a covenant. What am I talking about? Here's the word of the Lord. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But... I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Man, there's a sermon right there. When the sun has gone, had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. All right, let's break this one down. As the sun was going down, now what's happened? God is going to make a covenant with Abram. Now this is before his name is changed to Abraham. It's still Abram. God's going to make this covenant. Now when you make a covenant, you take an animal and you cut it in half. You lay the pieces out. In this particular case, there were three animals. Cut in half and laid out. The tradition of the Near East was this. If Mark and I are going to make a covenant, Mark will stand next to me. Mark and I will walk between the hewn animals, we will walk between these uh, cleaving carcasses, and you and I, that will express our covenant. We are going to travel through this way of blood. Notice what happened, though. Where is Abram when God is passing among the covenant? He is asleep. He is in a dark terror because he has encountered the power of God. Who passes through the covenant by himself? God does. God never makes a covenant with Abraham. He makes a covenant with himself on behalf of Abraham. Abraham never had to pass through. You see, in a covenant between a man and a man, if I break the covenant or you break the covenant, the covenant's broken. Since God passed through the covenant by himself, who does he hold accountable for that covenant? Himself. 
God swears by his own name. Understand this. When God chose Abram, it says that Abram believed God. It was accounted to him for righteousness. He set his love on Abram. Now, were there a lot of people in the world? Yes. Could he have set his love on anybody? Yes. What did God of himself sovereignly choose to do to set his love on a man now he will come back many times and he will say to the sons of Abraham Isaac and Jacob he will renew this covenant not in this way they'll never again pass the fire pot through the offering this covenant is binding and it's eternal because God makes it with himself Therefore, you cannot break the covenant with God because God made it with himself to honor the house of Abram. Do you understand what love is now? Love is not emotion. Love is not I earn it. Love is not I uphold my end of the bargain. Love is I see you. I choose to love you irregardless of your faithfulness. Think how often Israel violated God's commands. Think how often Israel sinned against God. Yet what did God always do in the midst of judgment? He preserve the remnant. Why? Because they were more worthy? No. Because he made a covenant. And we've seen it again and again in the scriptures. God keeps his covenant with himself. That he will have his remnant on the earth. He will have his people on the earth. That is why we know Jesus loves us. God chose to love Abram before Abram loved God. God set his love on him. He set his love on his descendants. The scriptures now say that we are descendants of Abram by how? By blood, by ethnicity, by faith. By faith we are like Abram and we have access to that covenant through Jesus Christ. God loves us because he chooses to love us. This is critical. This is the difference between Christianity and all of the false garbage in the world. In every other false religion, including, I'm sorry, there are churches in Tacoma that have crosses, that have Jesus, that have Bibles, and they preach a doctrine of works, and you know I'm not lying. You know exactly who those false prophets are, who those lying pastors are, and who those false churches are. They preach a doctrine of works, that God accepts you because of your works. God accepts you because of your faithfulness. God accepts you and blesses you because you give abundantly. You plant this seed of faith. I won't tell you what I think of that. Anyways, this goes back to the heart of it. You have to understand Abram. Abram did nothing. He did not pass through the covenant. Therefore, he could not break the covenant because God made it with himself on behalf of Abram and his people. Why? Because God knew no man could be faithful to God. He even predicts here at the beginning the slavery in Egypt. He predicts the whole thing in advance to tell him what? You will go through hard times, but I will deliver you. I will bring you out on the other side. That's what he's telling him. That's what he has to know to keep going. But let's press on. Deuteronomy 7, 9, right back to where we just were. Deuteronomy 7, 9. So he has said in 7 and 8, not because you were more in numbers, did the Yahweh set his love on you and choose you, even though you were the fewest of peoples, that the Lord did it because he loves you and he is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that the Lord would bring you out of Egypt with a mighty hand and redeem you from the house of slavery. So God has said, now this is 7, 9. Know therefore that Yahweh your God, he is God, or he is the only God, or the true God. He says further, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commands to a thousand generations. It's important you understand Abram because I've seen people pervert this scripture to show that you have to work to earn God's love. That's nonsense. Even when we are faithful, 
less. God is faithful. What does it say again right here in this verse? The faithful God who keeps what? Covenant. Covenant with who? With himself. Not because of your works. Not because of your giving. Not because you lead such a sterling Christian life. But because he keeps a covenant with himself. And now because of Christ. Deuteronomy 7 9. Here it is. He is the faithful God. The word faithful means this. Understand. God is faithful. That means he is permanent. He is true. He is a firm foundation. Only when we consider the nature of God, that it is the nature of God to be permanent, true, and firm in the midst of us, in the midst of what we do. I mean, we can build a house of cards on the foundation of Jesus Christ. When the storm comes, what happens to our house of cards, our possessions, our health, all of our pride? What happens? Blown down like a house of cards. What is still standing? Foundation. Go to Louisiana. A lot of houses got knocked down. What was left? The strong foundations. The houses didn't have a foundation. When the house went, everything went. There's nothing left in that land. The houses that had a foundation, at least they had a place to begin over again. If you have messed up your life, if you have made a mistake, remember, the foundation is still intact because God is faithful who keeps his covenants. It also says that who keeps covenant and steadfast love. The word steadfast love has nothing to do with emotion. God doesn't love you boo-hoo, palpitating heart. The word steadfast love means kindness and mercy. So he is a God of permanence and a God of mercy. What is mercy? Not getting what you deserve. That's mercy. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. So he is a God of mercy, always and in all things. This is who our God is. But what else is he? 1 Kings 8, 23. 1 Kings 8, 23. I want us to look at that real quick. Just write it down because it's going to come up on your screen. Boom, right there it is. 8.23 says this. And he says to him, O Lord, or Yahweh, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on the earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. Man, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you. Understand, there is no other God, no other point of reference in heaven above or on the earth below who what? Keeps covenant. Why is that important? Every pagan god was known for their fickleness. Zeus or Hera in the Greek demigods, of Mars, the god of war, Baal, Astaroth, all of these gods were fickled. They could be for you one day and against you the next day. Every god was unfaithful. If you read, there is a, a letter, uh, a prayer written to the god Marduk, who was a, a god of the pagans. And this letter to the god Marduk was written by a priest. And in that letter, he says, oh, 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 warrior Marduk, you know, please forgive my iniquities. Although, who can understand a god and who can placate his anger? Apparently, even the people worshiping these gods had no faith in their ability to forgive or be forgiven. And I told you before, when, when um, Muhammad was asked, how could one get to go into heaven and be with Allah? He said, I don't even know if I'm going because it's all about what? Kismet faith, that thing that's outside your ability to control. So you see, why does God love us? He is steadfast, merciful, and he goes to those servants who love him with all their hearts. Now, are our hearts always true? No. Do we drift off? Yes. When we drift off, what keeps us in God's grace and his mercy? He keeps his covenant 
with himself. God has set his love upon you. That is why you cannot lose your salvation. You didn't earn it. You didn't get it by some activity that you did or some work. God gave you salvation, the word of God says. Therefore, you have it. You can be set aside. You can be shelved. You can lose fellowship. You can lose joy and peace. But you can't lose what God gave you as a sovereign act of his will, which is your salvation. If you've asked, you know, Jesus Christ into your life. Jonah 4.2. Book of Jonah 4.2. Finish this up. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah was so ticked that God did not destroy the Ninevites. Jonah was so angry. That's why he didn't want to go. He says, I knew that you were a gracious God. The word gracious means to show favor, to show mercy, to show grace. He says that you are a merciful God, slow to anger. I, I, when I think about slow to anger, I think about going back to the very first thing in, um, in Genesis when God says to Abram that the sins of the Amorites had not reached their peak. God gives people chance after chance after chance until their sin hits the peak and then God brings down the hammer and destroys them. Sodom and Gomorrah the same way. The sin rose, the sin rose, the sin rose, and then God brings judgment. In our cases, the only judgment we have is the displeasure of our God because his grace keeps bearing with us, keeps going with us. And now notice at this, at the very end, he says, you are relenting from disaster. Who's got a King James or a new King James? Does your word say repenting? Does it say repenting from disaster? Because someone asked me, how can God repent? Doesn't repent mean that you were wrong in the first place? Repenting is an unfortunate choice of words. I'm sorry, King James blew it on this one. Or at least in 1535, when the original was translated and the guys in 1611 stole it, the meaning has changed since then. What it means to say relenting from disaster is this. The word relent or repent means to breathe a heavy sigh, a, a sigh of sorrow, a sigh of grief. God sees our suffering. God sees us being destroyed by our choices, by our addiction to sin and our resistance to the gospel. He breathes out a heavy sigh and he is always willing to feel pity for us. So it's not that God is sorry he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not that he is sorry he destroyed the world through a flood. He simply has pity and sorrow for his creation, which is addicted and enslaved by sin. That's what Jonah knew, that when God sees sinful men like Sodom and Gomorrah, like Nineveh, his heart is broken by their grief and by their sinfulness. One last scripture and then we are done. 1 John 4, 17 says this, By this love is perfected with us, that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is so, also are we in this world. The one I want to focus on right here is this, that we may have confidence in this day. The love of God is set upon us. It's given to us as a gift. We, we take possession of that when we receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Don't get me wrong. If you don't receive Jesus, you're going to hell. Nothing can change that. But when God sets his love on the believer, when he sets his love on those who have come under the umbrella of Christ, that's where you remain. You remain that beloved. You remain that object of his, of his compassion and mercy and grace and power. And the thing is, when we understand, I may not understand why Jesus saved me. Why did Jesus go to the cross for me? I don't understand that. I don't think anybody here does. 
But it's important that you understand it's God's choice to love you because then you have confidence for the day of judgment. Because you see, if you don't think Jesus loves you, what are you going to do with your life? You're going to slowly stop reading the word. You're going to stop praying. You're going to stop going to church. You're going to stop believing in this God because you just don't understand how he could love you. It doesn't matter how he chose to love us. It matters that he chose to love us and that that love has redeemed us for that day of judgment. So we will not be judged as sinners who are bound for hell, but we will be judged as the redeemed for that inheritance of, of eternity. So let's recap it and we're finished. One, God loves us because he is love. It is his nature to be loving. God chooses to love. God chooses to keep the, the remnant. God chooses to pick for himself a peculiar people, a kingdom of priests, a nation of people who will know him and make him known throughout the earth. That's first. Second, God chooses to set his love on us because we cannot be saved otherwise. If God did not set his love on us, if God did not reveal himself through uh, Abram, Isaac, Jacob, the people of Israel, if he did not reveal himself in the Exodus at Mount Sinai, if he did not reveal himself in the Ten Commandments and in Jesus Christ, we would all go to hell. That's all there is to it. If God did not reveal himself out of love and compassion and mercy, we would have no chance of eternal life. Finally, Jesus is God. Therefore, he came to live out this loving redemption. Goes back to that question. Why did Jesus die? Because that is the final act of God's redemptive plan. It began with uh, substituting a ram for Isaac on that altar at Mount Moriah. It continued through the animal sacrifices in the tabernacle and the temple. It continued through all those ages. Animals being shed to temporarily assuage the anger of God. But it came to its culmination when a cross was erected on a hill outside of Jerusalem in around 30 AD, and on that cross was placed the Son of God. Now you've noticed the cross sitting up there. Do you know why it's on its side? At first we were going to put the cross upright. You know why? Because the cross upright reminds us the price that Jesus paid. But you know what? We're on this side of the cross, amen? I mean, if anybody in here, if you've never accepted Christ, all these promises don't apply to you. If you're here and you've never asked Christ into your life, none of this applies to you. You are still under the penalty of death. And you need to talk to me or someone before you get out of here. But for those of us who are redeemed, we are on this side of the cross. The cross was stood up as a, a symbol of fear and intimidation to threaten the people of Jerusalem, to threaten the Jews into submission. God does not have to threaten us into submission. We have laid that cross aside because now we have Jesus. We don't need the cross to threaten us. We have Christ to love us into that kingdom. So we put it to the side today because at the foot of that cross is a basket. You see a lot, of, a lot of signs of thanksgiving there, the flowers, the, the pumpkins, the squashes, but there's a basket there. And I ask you guys to take a piece of paper at the back. I took it earlier, and on this thing I wrote the things that I am thankful for. I wrote the things for which I praise God. Now tonight, the only way that I can return anything to God is what the Psalms call a sacrifice of praise. And I praise God for the things that I have, and then I'm going to place them on the foot of the cross. And I'm going to invite you. I'm not going to force you. I'm not going to beat you up. But I'm going to invite you guys to walk up here and place your offering to the Lord in that basket and then step up here into this place and say what you wrote. Say what you thanked God for, what you praised God for. I'll even read your mind. It says, I give thanks to the Lord for his gift of a wife and child who know the Lord. He said, that's peace. See, for me, uh, I can't imagine going through my life wondering, is my wife saved? Is my child saved? Are they going to go to heaven? Are they going to know the peace of, of Christ? 
Because I think that would be the worst feeling in the world to not know if my wife and child were saved. And that's why when I counsel people about marriage, I say, don't marry an unbeliever because you will live every day in the morbid fear that if they die, you know for a fact that you will never see them again. They will be plunged into hell on that final day of judgment and you can do nothing about that. I can't even imagine that. So I want to put this in that basket. I was going to have my wife kind of play quietly there. And I invite you guys, pray about it. If you don't have anything written down, maybe this something we've read today was struck a chord with you. Maybe something that God, His faithfulness, His keeping of covenants, His revealing of Himself to you is something that you want to thank Him for. But I'm going to put this in that basket. And I'm going to sit down and shut up. And if you guys have something to praise God for, step up and do it. Thank you for joining us today in the archives. I am your host, Richard Stidham. Remember that we are a listener-supported ministry here, and if you would like to contribute in any way to keeping this message on the air, you can send any gifts to Richard Stidham, 1321 Baytown, Texas, 77521. That's P.O. Box 1321, Baytown, Texas, 77521. God bless and we'll see you again in the archives.